Stanford University. Um, I'm Fred Turner, and I want to welcome you here today to the first annual Pat and Roland Reveille First Amendment Conference, um, and particularly to the Reveille panel on new media and political communication. Before we get underway, I have a number of thank yous to say, and I want to say them very directly. First, uh, to Pat and Roland Reveille um, for bringing this event into being, but more particularly for their sustained interest in journalism, in the fate of public discourse, and particularly in on issues of free speech and democracy. Um, very staunch supporters of a critical dialogue on those topics. Um, and I want to thank them especially for making this gathering possible. I want to thank Daniel Kreese down at the far end, whom, from whom we'll be hearing momentarily, who is the first Rebelly First Amendment fellow and a PhD candidate in our department um, for thinking up this gathering and helping it to come into being. Um, I want to also likewise thank our chair, Professor James Fishkin, here in the front. Um, Barbara Katauka, Sean Bernardo, Mark Sauer, and Mark Dizzuti, all of whom helped make this happen. So thank you to all. Um, terrific. And I'm, I'm Fred Turner. I'm an assistant professor here in, in the communication department, and I, I work on new media. Um, so I want to say just a couple words about what we're up to and then introduce the speakers and get out of the way. Um, you know, media have long been a key to political life, as, as many of my colleagues could, could say in some depth. Um, and as media technologies have changed, so too have the terms on which we've done our political business. The terms by which we talk to one another, the terms by which we talk back to the state, the terms by which the state talks to us. Um, over the last decade, we've seen an incredible transformation in media technology. And these three scholars, I think, have um, between them perhaps one of the most interesting and certainly cutting edge uh, takes on those changes. Um, you know, digital media have opened up new roles in the political landscape. We'll be hearing about that. They've transformed the process of political deliberation here and abroad, as Jim knows and has, has, has helped happen. Um, they're reshaping political campaigns. And they're reshaping, I think, what it means to have a nation and a national boundary. Um, some have argued, and I think Matt's going to speak to this some, that new media technologies are simply by nature of their te technological affordances reinvigorating democracy straight up. Um, it's a more complicated story. Matt has it, and we'll be hearing it from him. Um, I'm going to introduce the panelists in just a moment. A brief word about format. Each panelist is going to speak for about 20 minutes, and I'm going to ask you to hold your questions to the end, if you would. Um, we'll have a lot of time for discussion. Um, it should be a very robust discussion, and we're excited about that. Um, after the event, uh, we'll have a reception in the courtyard behind the building, and you're more than welcome to come to that. We'd love to have you there. You'll have a chance to talk even more to the panelists at that point. Um, so, without further ado, our speakers. Um, first, I need to, to not introduce Stephen Weber. Um, he went to Washington earlier in the week thinking he could be back in time, but like many things in Washington, he got stuck. Um, and so... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> so I'm afraid Stephen Weber is, is, is still um, in, in, in somewhere in the Capitol, um, and we're sorry to miss him. We are, however, extremely lucky to have three distinguished and um, very thoughtful speakers. The first will be Philip Howard, here on my left. Phil's an associate professor at the Department of Communication at the University of Washington. He's the author of the multiple award-winning book, New Media Campaigns and the Managed Citizen. He's also the editor of two volumes, Society Online, The Internet in Context, and The Handbook of Internet Politics. Um, you know, his, his research has focused for a long time on media technologies and advanced democracy. Um, he's one of the liveliest thinkers in this area, as his um, set of affiliations attests. He's been a fellow in three places, the Pew Internet and American Life Project in Washington, D.C., 
the Stanhope Center for Communications Policy Research in London. And at the moment, he is, in fact, a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences here at Stanford. We're very lucky to get him down the hill. Um, Daniel Kreese is on the far end. Um, he's a PhD candidate and the Rebelly First Amendment fellow here in our department. Dan's dissertation research focuses on new media and contemporary political practice, particularly on some of the roots of the Obama campaign in the Dean campaign and deeper in American cultural and technological history. Um, I think you'll find it very, very interesting. Um, he, his findings consistently blow me away. Um, finally, we'll be hearing from Matthew Hinman. Um, who's there in the middle. Uh, Matt uh, graduated a few years back in politics from Princeton. He's a professor of political science at Arizona State University. He's been a fellow at the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. Um, he's also the author, most famously, of a book called The Myth of Digital Democracy, just out, um, and a terrific read, The Myth of Digital Democracy, highly recommended. So then, um, let me turn over the floor to Phil. We'll have Phil and Dan and Matt and questions at the end. Thanks. Thank you uh, for the generous introduction and the invitation to speak. I'm going to try to coordinate my slideshow. Yes. And uh, technology. Resume slideshow. That's not my slideshow. Apologies. Um, so my talk today is going to start with a quick story, an odd story, about the location of information technologies, the political infrastructure in the Muslim world. And my research questions are mostly about how elites use information technologies to manipulate public opinion. And my first book with Cambridge Press was about how these elites design the tools that we now take for, very, for granted in the Obama age, these informational tools that the public uses both to learn about politicians and public policy options, and the tools that the politicians use to manipulate public opinion, to learn about popular preferences, and indeed to what we would colloquially call data mine assemble very detailed profiles about what they think your interests are so that they don't have to contact you. Um, one of the theoretical hooks for my first book was that the primary implication of this is that politicians no longer need to speak to the groups of people who don't vote for them directly. Now, in a sense, this has always made sense because of the way constituencies have borders. Um, but now, if a politician can figure out that the odds that you're voting is, are very low, they won't spend time with you. They don't need to tailor, tailor a message for you. And I call this a, a form of political redlining. It's the ability to figure out which parts of your district you don't need to spend time on. And this is a very important advance for these campaigns in an era where television commercials are cost so much, the logistics of getting campaign staff out on the ground are, uh, are so expensive. Um, the data mining that happens in advanced democracies, I believe, is a key asset, a key feature of the new system of political communication that, for example, Obama has managed to take advantage of. In the rest of the world, this is a somewhat different story. So 
if we ask these general questions of the advanced democracies, how do social elites influence the engineering of information infrastructure? In what ways do engineering standards and telecom policy embody political culture and reinforce social inequalities? How do technical standards and standard setting itself help shape political culture? I became interested, having asked these questions in the context of the United States, in how they might play out in the developing world, in particular Muslim countries. Um, many of you, if you read the New York Times, read the Wall Street Journal, once a month there's an article about how the internet is revolutionizing politics in the Muslim world. But it's not simply that. There's a soft orientalism, I believe, to the form taken of this journalistic coverage, and I'll, I'll develop that critique in a second. So the questions for my year on Leave up, uh, up the Hill at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences are these. Is democracy advanced through the diffusion of new information technologies? Among the diverse countries and cultures of the Muslim world, how do such technologies provide both capacities and constraints on institutional change? And has the internet had an important role in creating new patterns of political communication in the Muslim world? And I guess as a, a sub-question of that, has the internet in any way replicated the interesting new patterns of political communication we see here in the United States? So I'm working on a book manuscript um, called Information Technology and Democratization, The Muslim Experience Across the Developing World. And I'm giving you the chapter outline to give you a sense of how the argument's going to take shape. But what I'd like to present for you today are three strange cases, three strange cases that I'm genuinely puzzled by that don't fit well into my argument. Um, and they wouldn't fit well into an argument, a utopian argument, about how the internet is revolutionizing um, political culture in the developing world. They wouldn't fit into a cynic's argument about how the internet never changes anything. So the manuscript has this rough outline, an introduction um, in which I demonstrate the ways, in, the peculiar ways in which journalists often cover information technologies in the Muslim world. One of the primary hooks is to write about, uh, is to connect information technology use with terrorism in the Muslim world. And in part, this is the topic we're all interested in. <coughs> but often I see, um, some interesting made-up words like e-jihadis. So we'll, <laughs> the, you'll see articles about e-jihadis, folks who use the internet for logistical purposes to uh, gather up new members to spread, spread their message of hate and organize violent attacks. Uh, there's cyber war and cyber terror. There's online jihad. There are these various turns of phrase that we use to associate internet use in the Muslim world with terrorist activity. The core argument for me, for my the book manuscript, is that there is an important story about civil Islam, about the role of the internet in civil society groups for political parties, fairly mainstream political parties, conservative and Democrat and Republican, socialist, which I think are mainstream in that part of the world. But there's this mainstream story, there's a story about journalists and the changing way journalism is done in the, in the developing world. There's a mainstream story about how civil society groups are better able to raise money, better able to provide services, better able to find independence from the state. Right? This is one of the key definitions of civil society. They're social actors that are independent of the state. And in my book, I'm going to demonstrate the ways in which civil societies are finding, civil society groups are finding this independence through mobile phones and through information technologies such as the internet. The final hook for this chapter, for my chapter six, will get into censorship. So, I can demonstrate some wonderful stories about citizens using YouTube to track 
the wife of the Tunisian president who takes the national plane to Europe to go for shopping, and they've managed to figure out how to get folks to photograph the plane landing in Paris, landing in Italy on her shopping trips, and they made a gorgeous video of this, put it on YouTube, and it greatly embarrassed the president. And I think it was two weeks ago that a story broke about the brother of the emir of the UAE who made home, vo home digital videos of him torturing uh, subjects, uh, including several nasty scenes of him running over people with his SUV. So somebody got into his mobile phone, got into his equipment, found the movies, uploaded them, and now there's a major diplomatic uproar over um, uh, what this fellow's been doing. Um, and it's difficult to connect some of these stories to political change, regime transition, um, and in part, that is because the technologies that let civil society actors do their work well also let social elites do their censorship well. So in important ways, it's, uh, the internet is a great tool for managing culture. But, so I, I do have the great stories, the inspiring stories, and the nasty stories of censorship. What I'd like to share with you are the three stories um, that are perplexing me. I use three methods. Uh, network ethnography is a, a system of using social network analysis to figure out who I want to spend time with in my fieldwork. I do some time series regressions, which I'll, I won't be sparing you. Uh, I won't be presenting with you today, and I do some archival work. Um, most of my archival work involves reading journals that you should be very glad you don't have to read. Um, <laughs> the latest find for me is Converge the Network Information Infrastructure Digest, but I also read uh, t submarine telecoms and non-military cable quarterly and underwater magazine. These things have become <laughs> the fodder because for my um, archival work because that's where I find the strange stories of about how politicians interfere with engineers and how engineers interfere with political projects. Let me talk about my three cases. I'm going to present a couple of maps here that will demonstrate, I think, why my cases are interesting. Um, I have three, Azerbaijan, Tanzania, and Tajikistan. Now, I won't let, I won't, you don't need to guess how they're connected. I'll explain this. I'll explain this. So I have here a map of the world in which the bright lights are the, the, the dense, represent the density of servers. And this graphic can tell us a couple of things. First of all, um, the largest swath of coastline, uh, populated coastline with very poor information infrastructure, is in East Africa, from Johannesburg up to about Djibouti. And of course, there are what the engineers, the, the, the IT engineers call black holes, Central Asia, um, and the Caucasus, places with large numbers of people with no information, uh, no access to the, very poor access to the internet. If we make a similar kind of map based on the flow of bits rather than the physical location of servers, we can tell a similar story about gaps. Um, a significant lack of infrastructure in East Africa, again, a black hole in Central Asia, and most obviously, the flow of information is basically to North America and back. So for me, what I see is interesting in this graphic is the lack of flowing bits east and west across Russia. Japan tends to, tends to throw its bits to North America, and all the peripheral regions tend to, tend to send their bits to North America and back. Now, we think of networks as, as sometimes we think of networks as um, egalitarian structures. 
Um, for most analysts, networks are usually networks of networks. And there can be inequalities in a network structure. So these connections tend to be slow. Um, they tend not to. They tend to cost more for local users. The amount of traffic back and forth between Europe uh, greatly uh, greatly outpaces in speed and volume the amount of content between any other part of the world. So my three stories involve Dar es Salaam, the most likely landing point for an undersea trunk cable that would serve all of East Africa. They involve Baku, the city with a natural gas pipeline, which is supposed to have a trunk cable running into Central Asia, and Tajikistan, which some might say is the hind end of the internet in the sense that it's probably the most non-Western culture and the furthest from any of this infrastructure we come to value today. So I'm going to talk about the way strange things are happening in these three countries that have an impact on political culture. And I'm going to start off my story with a group of smart mob activists in Baku. They're uh, students at the university, and uh, once a month to protest the control of the national media, they get together in the central square and read their newspapers with their shoes off. They kick their shoes off. Towards the end of the event, they'll all stand up uh, in circles, take pictures, and um, uh, tell stories. The cops come at the end of the event and crack a few heads. A few students spend the night in jail. Um, but the police never really know how to process this. The, the, stories, the stories of the protest will make the national news, but again, the journalists don't understand um, what this kind of protest is. One of the movement leaders gave me a quotable quote that's, that was worth the flight to Baku. Um, here we see our students with their feet off. Here we see our police carting away a few of the movement leaders. One of the movement leaders said, the events themselves are not political protest, but they do teach the state that the internet makes collective action possible. In a sense, their goal is not immediately to overthrow the state, to make it a democracy, but they want the state to know that they have this capacity. Now, the reason this slide is entitled Structurally Stifled is that whenever they have a successful event, the digital artifacts from their event disappear from the internet. This is called the slash dot effect. It occurs whenever you have a very popular amount of content on a server that is slow and not very, um, not very effective at distributing its content. The server will, will slow down and indeed shut down. And so whenever they have a great event, they generate movies, they take lots of photos, they alert the diaspora, the diaspora comes to look at the content, the servers shut down, they wink out. So by virtue of the success of political activism, they're unable to maintain an archive of their work. This is in large part because of the poor connections to the rest of the internet. Tajikistan has a different kind of story. Tajikistan is a state with uh, a little bit of state capacity, but not a lot. So the civil society groups in, in Tajikistan have decided that to make a little bit of money, they actually want to become ISPs. They want to offer internet access to the, civil, the smaller civil society groups in Dushanbe. They've set up a, a number of connections that uh, speedily send traffic to Tehran and Moscow. But the cost of this traffic makes it still prohibitive for many of the people in Tajikistan, who would, in the capital city anyway, who would use the connection. And so the civil society groups are arguing for a, an internet exchange point. This is a, a server that would sit in, in Dushanbe and allow the packets that are really just going to other Tajiks 
to stay within the country. Um, an equivalent parallel might be that if we all ordered New York Times magazine, uh, if we all ordered the New York Times Sunday edition, one scenario for the New York Times would be to print all of the newspapers in New York and send them to us all individually. A more effective scenario would be to print the New York Times here and distribute from here. If we were all in the same apartment building, we might only need two or three issues, so a few copies of the New York Times which we could circulate. These are the different possibilities for distributing the information, and Tajikistan is set up with that first scenario. All the packets must travel far. This keeps a very high cost internet access within Tajikistan, and it's effectively discouraging the uptake. So this is a situation in which the state actually doesn't understand much about the structural problem. There is no engineer employed in the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Communication and Culture, for whom this pitch could be made. The civil society groups know they want an internet exchange point, but the state itself doesn't have the capacity to understand this question and isn't able to respond. Um, so this is an odd example where the state, the dictator, isn't doing something nasty to the civil society groups. They're just incapable of responding in a sensible way. My final case has to do with Tanzania. And for me, it's one of the most interesting. <coughs> Tanzania is often held up as a great example of a country that can use the internet to improve the capacity of the state. This is a country that uh, currently likes its, its elected leaders. They've had several elections that seem to work well. The state is effectively collecting taxes and distributing resources. They're able to keep track of the boats that come in and out of the port. And in large part, this is because of the new media that the state has used to improve the way it serves its citizens. Um, so one of the great stories is that the Internal Revenue Authority has just uh, started using a new software that helps them manage taxes. Just helps them, helps them keep track of who's paid and who hasn't paid. Whenever they catch somebody who isn't paying or is ripping off the state in some way, They'll take, a f they'll take the files, the, they'll advertise the fact that the firm or the individual is ripping off the state. Um, so for example, the week I was there, the state had caught, the state had caught this fellow, um, Mr. Alex Andrea Matovu, and they printed on the front page of the Dar es Salaam Guardian, we would like to inform the general public that this fellow is no longer an employee. The company will not be liable with any for any transaction conducted by him on behalf of the company issued by management. This is a, um, an embarrassing statement that the, the revenue authority will make firms print on the front page of the newspaper if they're able to catch um, graft, if they're able to catch the corruption. Um, the previous, this cartoon is something that they print above every time they catch someone and print the face. They print this cartoon. The three public offices where corruption is said to be most rampant by 2005, uh, the correct answers are the police, the courts, and the revenue authority. Although when I gave a similar talk in Azerbaijan, the students guessed, uh, they yelled out loud, police, revenue authority, professor. <laughs> uh, but that's not that's in fact the revenue authority but it's managed to clean up its act the next stage for the state is to use information technologies to improve the justice system this is a state that's trying hard they're using information technologies to improve the capacity of the state to collect taxes to keep records to encourage remittances which is very important for many developing countries there are plenty of engineers working for the government who are aware of the possibilities and the, um, the capacities of information technology to do good things for their country. 
but they're having great difficulty landing an undersea trunk cable. So in the 1990s, the West African countries got together and decided they wanted an undersea trunk cable that would bring very fast internet connections to their capital cities. They negotiated a deal with a French firm, Alcatel, to build the trunk cable. The reason they wanted an undersea trunk cable is that the, the speed is much faster than satellite service. So they thought banding together, getting the undersea trunk cable built would give cheap internet access for all the, all the populations in, uh, along West Africa. The firm, at the end, once it was built, priced internet access at only a few pennies below the cost of satellite access. So indeed, it was cheaper, but not as cheap as the states, the governments, were hoping. East Africa does not want to follow this model. So in East Africa, the Tanzanians are trying to manage a collective project in which the undersea trunk cable would run into Dar es Salaam and be collectively managed without a third-party firm such as Alcatel or Siemens managing it. But they can't find money from the international lending system. Nobody will give them the funds to manage a public infrastructure project like this. And so East Africa remains underserved um, and, uh, underserved and uh, fairly dependent both on West Africa and on its own satellite access. So while I could tell you inspiring stories about how the internet is good for social movements, I've got three odd cases in three interesting parts of the, of the global information infrastructure. Baku, in a sense, has become a choke point for much of Central Asia. Dar es Salaam has become a choke point for much of East Africa. And in a sense, their development in terms of information structure is going to be stymied until these choke points are relieved. The leapfrog metaphor, the metaphor we most often use to explain um, the advantages of using information technology to improve political culture, probably doesn't apply in these three cases. The, my Tanzania case is a case where the, there's the will, but not the way. My Tajikistan case is an example where the state doesn't have the capacity to respond to the queries from the civil society. Um, and my Azeri case is one in which uh, the inf information infrastructure is there, but it's mostly geared towards serving the oil firms. It's not really geared towards serving civic actors. So in this sense, I have complicating very complicating narratives to my story. Technology structures inequality in political content, um, but this seems to be, in some cases, an indirect consequence of a regime's telecommunications policies. Infrastructure can prevent civil society actors from organizing to lower costs and increase speed. And in a sense, this new media structures inequality through costs, but not always in a politically deliberate way. There are plenty of countries where censorship is a clearly deliberate strategy. My cases are not so clear. In Tanzania, there is, a there is an effort to build a collective public infrastructure project. It's become very difficult to finance. In this case, technology structures, inequalities in content and access, but not as a result of the national policy agenda. It's a result of an international blockage, a blockage in international um, affairs. So thanks for your time. I look forward to your questions. These are my three odd cases, and I would love help with the analysis. Thank you. And once again, please do save, for folks who've come in, please do save your questions for the end. Thanks. We seem to have grown some. If there's yeah. a couple seats left up here, if anybody wants to move up to the, the front. We do have extra seats up here, too, for folks who are stuck in the way back. 
Great. Thanks. Great. Uh... Great. Um, so thank you all for coming. My name is Daniel Kreese. I'm a PhD candidate in the department um, and the Rebley First Amendment Fellow uh, here. And I'm going to talk a little bit today uh, about the artifacts and the organizations and the socio-technical systems that make up how we conduct electoral campaigns uh, in the United States. Um, this is part of my larger dissertation project. Um, so uh, basically, um, for the last year and a half, I've been compiling a couple different sources of data. Uh, so I've had over 30 interviews with political consultants, uh, stretching everywhere from the Al Gore campaign on up through the Obama campaign. Um, I've also done uh, participant observation on the Obama campaign in San Francisco, as well as in Nevada. Uh, and I have compiled um, tons of FEC reports uh, and other public documents relating to the campaign. Um, so what I really want to talk about today uh, are three things. And, and the first, just provide a general overview of some veins of scholarly work on new media and electoral politics. And after that, I want to get into um, really sketching my own analysis of the artifacts, the organizations, uh, and a lot of the systems uh, that we now see in electoral politics. And I'll do so by really focusing on the Dean and Obama campaigns with a particular eye paid to the work of a digital political consultancy that comes out of the Dean campaign called Blue State Digital. Um, and they ended up, uh, in addition to doing uh, the new media for the Obama campaign, uh, at a number of other sites in the political field, uh, for example, the Democratic National uh, Committee. And finally, I want to conclude by sketching an analytical approach to new media and politics. So how can we think about these things in new ways that might open up a new set of questions relating to power, relating to citizenship, and relating to agency. So how can we think about political participation in 2008 in the context of the internet that's a little bit more complicated uh, than some of the other larger narratives that uh, Phil Howard sketched uh, a couple minutes ago, uh, and that also we see um, sketching the internet in, in very utopic terms. So I started this research uh, with a couple of very basic questions. Um, I was wondering if new media helped uh, create a new balance of political power in the American uh, electoral system. Do digital media reshape the way we elect presidents? Uh, do they reshape the way we set the terms of public debate? Um, and finally, does citizenship look different in the information age? Do we see different practices? Do citizens do new things? Can they do new things? Um, and how should we think about these things? Well, in the literature, we see a couple of claims. Uh, and for one, the causal element really that drives a, a large body of work is that changes in tools and media affect changes in the information environment, which in turn drives shifts in political practice. Let me say what that means. Um, because the cost of producing and disseminating information has fallen drastically, a lot of scholars argue that um, many non-bureaucratic organizations, small organizations, have increased means to get their message out and to 
uh, affect political action by organizing events, organizing protests, et cetera. So for example, in the case that Phil just talked about, you can use cell phones, for example, to get a group of people to convene a political protest at a certain site. One of the other uh, things that scholars argue is that because information uh, cost is uh, falling, that you increasingly see collective action happen from the bottom up. Um, so in a lot of the narratives uh, within the literature and certainly within the press, we see stories about bands of citizens who uh, organize, self-organize themselves to create political engagement or political protest. And the other side of this coin is that we often hear that this happens outside of the formal organizations of earlier eras. So we could think about this, say, in the journalistic case. So for example, a lot of people herald that we now have citizen journalism, where citizens can instantly be anywhere on the scene in the world, take photographs, upload it to uh, separate sites, and access that information. And we never need to see a formal organization coordinate that role. Another claim uh, that f stems from that is that online politics entails leveled collaboration and undermines elites. So for example, uh, we no longer, since we no longer have formal organizations, we can have citizens who band together and by consensus and collaboration set the terms of their own political engagement. Nobody's there to enforce a system of rules or structures upon them. Uh, and this in turn is said to be, uh, again to borrow a metaphor, leapfrogging around uh, political elites of the past. So old party bosses or old political consultants, for example, are all in this story uh, undermined on the basis of new media. And finally, this leads many scholars to make the claim that citizens are newly active and empowered. Uh, so they have a lot more opportunities to take political culture into their own hands, whether it's through blogs, uh, whether it's through organizing tools. And this is said to be a very people-powered movement more generally uh, across electoral politics. Interestingly enough, a lot of digital consultants make the exact same claims. <laughs> so my research suggests something a little bit different. Um, I want to argue that certainly rhetorically and technically, we have seen a move from what I will call, and other scholars have called brochureware, to something called people power. And I'll talk a little bit about what that means in a second. But this isn't quite what that means. And I think a lot of rhetorical claims have served really to undermine, first of all, the new organizational intermediaries that structure a lot of what citizens are asked to do and how they're asked to participate. And that's one of the areas where I want to focus on today is to look at the social and financial networks that underpin a lot of what we think about as citizen engagement uh, in American democracy. Um, this has given rise to practices of digitally selling the president. Um, so whereas everyone decried Madison Avenue in the past for truncating the public sphere, now we actually see a host of more powerful tools uh, for targeting and narrow casting political communication. And it's primarily done on three different levels. The first is intimacy. So figuring out really what drives you, what you're interested in and speaking very narrowly to that. Um, the second is psychology. So where are you most likely to, um, how are you most likely to engage with a web page based on how it's designed? Um, and they take advantage of, of psychology to get you to do things that a campaign wants you to do. And very uh, finally, it's through social relationships. And this is a big shift that I want to point out, um, is that more and more political communication is being directed and steered through taking advantage of social networks. 
And finally, uh, I want to talk about electoral socio-technical systems. So beyond political communication, how do we think about large technical infrastructures that are collectives of machines and humans, and what that might afford people to do in electoral politics, and what that might foreclose? Um, so I'm hoping really today to open up a little bit of a discussion on some of these things and give us some fresh eyes with which to look at uh, new media and politics, and in particular, the Obama campaign. From brochureware to people power. So brochureware is a, a wonderful term uh, that academics and, and political consultants use to talk about what internet campaigning looked like prior to 2003, 2004. And it's a really simple ex, uh, term that captures the technical form of what these web pages used to look like. This, of course, is Al Gore's campaign web page. Uh, what it refers to is just creating HTML versions of what used to be handed out on street corners. So the narrative goes that there was very little uh, interactivity here, um, that what you actually saw was just lar uh, long, detailed policy statements, for example. And this largely reflects the way that political consultants thought about using the web in 2000. The primary user, political consultants thought, who would be coming to a website were voters who were undecided. They would be seeking out more information on a particular candidate. Uh, and ultimately, they would be trying to persuade that undecided voter through information to get them to join the side. And you can actually see this quite clearly. Um, in contrast, the Dean campaign, which I'll talk about in a minute, you see a very detailed policy statement. The one side of interactivity is for you to let Vice President Gore know what issue most concerns you, which would pull up a web page that gives you more detailed information on that. And interesting, you don't even see a contribute button uh, on, the, on the landing page of the Al Gore site. This, of course, will change in a huge way in four <laughs> years. Now, this is a bit of a simplification and a myth, uh, in part because political consultants um, oftentimes want to be claiming revolutions in what they do. It helps drum up business, at the very least. Um, but more generally, we tend to forget that Al Gore actually did a, a bunch of really interesting things online. For example, his site was open source and was in, uh, encouraging contributions uh, to the site and the source code. Um, he also had an application that enabled people to generate personalized versions of websites. So you could tailor your own Al Gore website based on the issues that really mattered to you. And in some ways, we started to see during, 2000, uh, during the 2000 elections, uh, the beginnings of a practice that really come to the fore in 2003 and 2004, which is making social networks work for campaign organizations and enabling campaigns to leverage it. So the example in 2000 was using email to pass along campaign messages. Now, what do I mean? Well, for email, if the John McCain campaign, for example, sent you, here's John McCain's speech, forward it to your friends, What's interesting there is that it's taking a path that's making your social networks a conduit for the messages of the campaign. And this was something that was very new in 2000 and really came to the fore in 2003-2004. So a couple words about Dean. Um, one of the things that Dean really worked to do was to create a platform for social networks to convene on the Dean site that the campaign could then take advantage of. And just to remind everyone of what 2003-2004 looked like, this was pre-Facebook and pre-YouTube. Uh, neither one existed. The two big social networking sites at that time, although we didn't even widely refer to them as such, uh, was Meetup, uh, which is a site where you can go to and, and meet offline in gatherings. 
um, as well as uh, Friendster, which was the early, in some ways, sort of uh, an earlier social networking site of Facebook. It's still around. Um, but really, those were the only two things. And a lot of what Dean did was really interesting from the standpoint of being proto-Web 2.0 practices. So one of the things they sought to do was, and you can see this encoded in the site itself, immediately getting you to take action. So they were assuming that you were now coming to this website not as an undecided voter, but as a voter who was already committed to the candidate. They hosted things like social networking platforms. So they had a platform called Dean Link. Uh, they enabled people to use Meetup, and they would send out agendas to those meetups uh, to get people to act on behalf of the campaign. And finally, they set up their own blog and social networking sites. Again, the notion that they could steer these things better if it was hosted on the campaign's own website. Now, I just want to make a quick point that one of the things we see is these tools are not being used for deliberative practices. These tools are being used for what Matt has called in other work the back end of campaign practices. So it's primarily about fundraising, it's about volunteer recruitment, and it's about voter mobilization. It's certainly not the deliberative practice that other folks would uh, think about. Now, I want to talk real briefly about the new organizational intermediaries. So one of the things we see after 2003-2004 was a set of technical practices that were developed on the Dean campaign that spread across the political field. Um, and they did this through a host of digital political consulting firms that come out of the 2003-2004 election. Um, there were at least 12 firms uh, that were launched by former staffers of the Dean campaign, as well as the effort to draft uh, Wesley Clark and the Clark campaign, as well as John Kerry's campaign. Uh, Blue State Digital was a firm that was founded by four members of the Dean uh, who were working on the internet architecture and new media staff. Um, through their social and professional ties, they were able to get the intellectual property rights to the Dean tools and then bring it to a host of other organizations in the field. Um, so one of the things they started out, they got the license to use the Dean tools, and then they licensed it back to Democracy for America, which were created, uh, which was the holding pattern, the holding group for Dean's run, should he have run again in 2007, 2008. From there, they reworked these tools and made them into a more powerful platform uh, and brought it to Progress Now, which was a multi-site progressive advocacy firm. From there, once Dean became chair of the DNC, they built Party Builder, which is the DNC's social networking platform. Uh, and then by the spring of 2007, uh, through, again, connections that run through former staffers on the Dean campaign, um, somebody who was working for Obama's political action committee brought Blue State Digital on board, and they adapted Party Builder and brought it to the Obama campaign. Now, what does this entail? Well, in some ways, we see this as an extension of some of the practices we saw earlier on the Dean campaign. So this is the dashboard for Obama. Um, and it allows you to do a lot of the same social networking activities that we thought of in relation to uh, Howard Dean much earlier. So for example, you could create events for the candidate. You could blog for the candidate. Uh, you could create your own social profiles. And all the while, as you took these sorts of activities, you would be earning points. Uh, and reputation points, and it was an incentive to get you to do more. Uh, this was the brainchild of Chris Hughes, who of course was the founder of Facebook, who was also working on the campaign. Um, but the social networking platform isn't the only aspect of Obama. You are also getting things like emails. So emails uh, are still the most, or one of the most widely used fundraising and recruitment vehicles uh, used by political campaigns. 
Um, it really has become standard practice from moveon.org, which created the genre for how this communication looked. And then they consulted, they were actually helping out the Dean campaign, and then the Dean campaign helped spread it from there. But the idea was that you could encourage people to take quick action. And finally, external sites like Facebook, the campaign had an entire uh, division within its new media division that was devoted to monitoring external websites like Facebook. Uh, and they would be looking to capture data from there, but also doing political messaging through these external sites. Underneath all of this um, is uh, really sophisticated data practices. Um, and I just want to talk about them for a minute. Um, so for example, everything that you did on my, Obama, my Barack Obama was as a supporter track. So the campaign can monitor which involvement and what you were engaged in. And then that would determine what phone calls you got to increase your involvement or other messages that you got. They had a 13 million person email list uh, that was very much tailored based on your demographics or your particular interests that you might have given to the campaign. Um, and it also coincided with much more powerful databases that really allow you to segment uh, political communication based on, say, things like your cookie and watching you get tracked uh, online and showed you particular banner ads, for example. And again, I want to stress here that while Obama was really um, successful at targeting this communication, again, we see it in very institutionalized realms. We don't necessarily see um, mass-based movements that are outside of, for example, this very narrow fundraising, mobilization, and recruitment uh, steps. And we could talk a little bit in the discussion about the FISA protests and the like and, and um, how some of these groups at times were used. But for the most part, it was mostly used to collect this data and to ser service the ends of the campaign. One of the things that are interesting is that um, the Obama campaign was really successful at creating these electoral socio-technical systems. Uh, and what I mean by this is that in using new media tools and interfaces, they were able to create a really interesting collective of human and machine that really increased the agency of the citizens in certain domains, but also in exchange for that, monitored and tracked the citizens and everything they did. Um, so just to give you a, a brief sense of how this looked, say for example, a supporter in California would get a recruiting email or text message to make calls to a registered voter to vote early in Nevada. They can make those calls. Everything the supporter does and the results of that canvas are all updated, uh, uploaded into a campaign database. And that campaign database can be uh, organized by field or it can be looked at by field organizers so that they're meeting their targets and they can dispatch field volunteers. Uh, and also being monitored by campaign headquarters. Now, one of the things we often hear about is that the internet is very decentralized, right? And, and formal organizations are becoming increasingly irrelevant as more collective action takes place outside its borders. But what you actually see is you see control at a distance. So you can deploy these systems that are very distributed, that enable me as a supporter to make a phone call, and that enables me to transcend that geographic boundary while I'm not working for the organization. But because it provides certain affordances through their system, it structures my involvement in very successful ways. So I'm outside the borders of the organization, um, but at the same time, I'm performing the activities that the campaign needs me to do. And I just want to conclude real briefly by saying that when we think about new media and politics, what we want to be thinking about and holding up simultaneously is looking at these socio-technical networks. So how do they structure what citizens are called on to do in electoral politics and what they can do? 
And that enables us to see how citizens, new media, and tools, new media tools and campaign operatives are constantly standing in relation to one another. So if we think about this relationally, I think we can avoid some of the more utopic pronouncements about the internet's role in democracy and see how there's actually new forms of power and agency, and it's a give and take. Uh, and that citizens have some agency in, in some domains like fundraising, like making phone calls, but not in others like deliberation and what might consequences of that be. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan and Matt Hyman. Come on up. Oh, that's not. Sorry. Is this yours? Great. We'll uh, have questions the far the, left. Well, questions for the group um, after Matt's talk. Great. There you go. All right. Can we? Uh... What's that? Great, great shot. So good afternoon. Thank you all very much for coming. Uh, it is an honor uh, and a privilege to be here. Um, I'm going to talk today about web traffic and online audiences. And I'm particularly going to be talking about the dynamics of web traffic. And that is how sites, how online audiences grow and shrink over time. Um, and the reason why I'm talking about this is because I think it's important. And it's important, first of all, for understanding a lot of what seems at first glance paradoxical about the internet. Um, I've been fortunate enough to do a number of these different types of, of panels and symposium recently. And one of the things that often hap happens is that some eminent distinguished scholar will get up and first talk about how worried he or she is about Google um, as the 500 pound gorilla and then in the same breath will talk about how the internet is constantly in flux and there's all these new voices. Um, come constantly, all these low barriers to entry. Now, obviously, there's a little bit, at least, of a contradiction there. Um, so I want to talk today about the ways that I'm trying to understand these contradictions. I want to talk, at least take a first uh, few steps towards what I'm uh, tr hoping will be a grand unified field theory about the dynamics of political traffic. I'm not there yet. Um, but the claim that I'm going to be making today, even if I'm not as far along as I would like to be, and even if this research is only a couple of months old, um, is that if we don't understand the dynamics of web traffic, we don't understand how online audiences shift in their traffic, how, how much visibility they get, we won't understand uh, the implications of the internet for political voice. We won't understand the implications of the internet for the First Amendment. We certainly won't understand the implication of the internet for blogs, both the incredibly constant emergence of new political blogs and the fact that somehow none of them seem to get as big as the current blogs that we have now. Right? Um, and I want to conclude actually by um, making uh, a little bit of an argument that this is such a power, these, these regularities are so powerful that we should be concerned about them for the future of newspapers in particular and media in general. Um, what is going to kill online news organizations, as I'm going to be talking about today, is not lower revenue online. It's much, much greater volatility. And I'll be talking more about exactly um, how that plays out. But before I go too deep into my uh, talk today, I want to start off um, by talking about what I've termed in my book the Robin Hood assumption. Um, We've often, as Daniel alluded to um, in, in a very different context, we often hear talks about the internet um, 
start off by the assumption that the Internet is acting as sort of a, a media Robin Hood. That what's really going on is the Internet is robbing from the audience rich and giving to the audience poor. Uh, in practice, uh, as I talk about in the, my book, and I'll be, as I'll be following up on a little bit later, that doesn't really seem to be happening. What we see instead is a movement of audience away from the middle, both to the very largest outlets of information and to the very smallest. Um, so we're going to be talking about that more in just, uh, in just a second. But if I'm claiming here that we've been missing uh, something in our understanding of the Internet, what exactly is this? Well, let me suggest a couple of things. First of all, in talking about the Internet, we all acknowledge that there's some sort of flux or some, sometimes talked about churn in terms of Internet traffic. But we don't really understand very much about how that works on the system level. Um, how Google's traffic is related to uh, you know, the, the traffic of the New York Times or some small political blog. We also would really like to know, as social scientists, how stable this system is. Right? So think about this. For, we know that Google is now the biggest site on the Internet. Uh, it has been uh, for a little while now. So what are the odds that Google will still be the number one site a year from now? Right? My argument is that we can, we can get a pretty decent estimate of what the odds are. Uh, if we look at the system dynamics. Or say I start a new blog and I want to, you know, I've managed to get a little bit of traffic. What are my odds that I can be the next Daily Coast or the next Huffington Post, right? What are the odds that a site that's now at rank 100 will jump to rank 50 or rank 10? And ultimately, again, a lot of this goes back to this Robin Hood assumption. We want to understand where the eyeballs actually are online. Is online concentration increasing or is it decreasing? Um, or is it stable over time? Right? And particularly important, I'm going to suggest, is it true that different kinds of outlets, particularly different sized outlets, um, sites that get lots of visitors versus sites that get almost no visitors, do different sized outlets behave different? So in order to understand the dynamics of web traffic, you need, of course, um, data over time. Um, and so what I'm going to be presenting here is based on a new series of data, a, a new data set that uh, has been kindly provided by Hitwise, uh, whom some of you are familiar with. Uh, it's a, a company originally founded uh, in Australia. And Hitwise spies, I'm sorry, um, so, uh, I, did I say <laughs> Hitwise, uh, uh, Hitwise uh, actually uses anonymized aggregate ISP data, which they, uh, which they buy, um, when, which is generally not problematic as long as it is really anonymized. Um, and they buy that from, uh, for about 10 million households in the United States. Um, and a, you know, it, it gets cleaned and filtered before it ever arrives at the Hitwise servers. Um, but one of the things that they're doing is they're looking at the number of visits that households go to. Visits being defined as a click or series of clicks on a website with no more than 30 minutes between clicks. Now, Hillwise was kind enough to provide three years' worth of data um, here. This is, daily, uh, this is daily market share data uh, from the 1st of July, 2005, uh, to the end of June, 2008. Um, and I'm going to be talking mostly tonight about the, uh, about the top 300 sites in two categories. First of all, all sites in, in Hitwise's database, uh, which is roughly 800,000, um, a, a, uh, a million on a monthly basis. Uh, and second, all the top 300 sites in the news and media category. On a given day, the top 300 sites get about 80% of all the total audience. So we have this rich new... 
uh, data set, um, rich new source of data. So how are we actually going to think about it? How are we going to analyze it? Um, well, uh, well, first of all, we can start just by taking a look at it. Um, and uh, we can see just by graphing it over time um, uh, that we have, uh, we can see that, uh, uh, we can see a couple things in this, in this data, which is the top five sites on every single day over this three-year period. Um, we can see MySpace has this incredible run during this period. Uh, apparently sometime in June 2007, all the cool kids decided that MySpace was not as cool. And it drops down. <laughs> Uh, we can also see the incredible performance of Google, which consistently just gains market share uh, month over month over month, um, now up to about 8% of all web visits. But I think that we can actually do better than that. Um, and I want to suggest that we all have a cognitive model that works a heck of a lot better for understanding web traffic than the models that are, uh, that are, that are used commonly uh, in the academic literature. Um, so I want to take a, what may seem at first a digression. I want to talk about stock prices. And I want to talk about what we all know about stock prices just from casually reading the financial news, right? Or casually following our um, recently quite uh, dramatically falling, 401k, right? Um, so we know, um, and we're very familiar, we, we, we know that stock prices are continuous. They change on a hourly, daily, minute-by-minute uh, -minute basis. Um, any individual who has the money can go down to a public exchange and buy any stock. Um, at any point, um, we know that stock prices can go up or down. At the same time, we know that markets have long-term trends. We, have, we talk about bull markets and bear markets. We know, in this, in the, and this is particularly important, um, that the stock market has really profound size effects. Um, we know that, the, that the, uh, of, the, of the total amount of money invested in the stock market, a hugely disproportionate amount goes into the very largest stocks, stocks like GE or Microsoft or Exxon. Um, and we know that GE or Microsoft and Exxon is a safer investment than uh, a penny stock or a small startup that just went public. Um, we know that large cap stocks are less volatile than mid cap stocks, that are more, less volatile than small cap or penny stocks. Um, and we don't suggest to our friends that they invest all their savings in penny stocks um, because that would be a bad idea because, it, because penny stocks we know are far more volatile. We know that some stocks move together. We know that, for example, technology stocks tend in general to move together. Um, or, uh, and, and we can think of examples of stocks that are negatively correlated, where stocks move in different directions. Um, and from the financial mathematics literature, we also know, and this is a, a somewhat of a technical point, but we know that stock price changes are log normally distributed. Um, that is that if you take, you take a whole group of stocks right, and look just at their changes over a day or a week or a month, what you get is a nice bell curve at any point that just slowly gets bigger over time. That's, what we, that's all we mean when we say that the stocks are log normally distributed. But take another look at this list. Um, I'm going to be suggesting today that every single thing on this list is something that we know, or we've suspected, or we should have known, to be true about 
traffic and web traffic among sites. We know that the amount of web traffic to a site changes on a daily and even hourly basis. We know that market share of sites goes up and down. Uh, we know that there are long-term effects. We certainly see from, this, uh, from, from, the, uh, from some of this data um, that uh, large sites are more stable in their audience distribution than middle-sized sites, than are, are more stable than the smallest sites. Um, and we're going to be testing in just a second whether or not these price changes are log normally. Distribute. Okay. Um, so, what I'm going to be showing you in most of the rest of the talk um, is, and I'm, I apologize for this, um, some mathematics. Right? Um, so, a lot of this is, I, I presume, I'm not expecting any of you to be, um, to be up on your stochastic portfolio theory. Um, but a lot of what I'm going to be um, showing you is really relatively um, straightforward. The question I'm going to be asking again and again throughout the rest of the talk is, is it really true on a statistical level that what we see in web traffic really looks like the behavior we're only used to seeing really in equities markets? And in lots of different dimensions, the answer is yes. So uh, one point that um, scholars have talked about for a long time um, is that audiences online tend to be highly concentrated in a specific way. They tend to be power law distributed. Um, well, if you look at the market literature and equity markets, um, all of these uh, financial mathematicians, they look at their models and they say, this really should be power law. This equity market, the distribution of the size of companies, really should be power law distributed. And it's not. GE is a little bit too small. The biggest companies are a little bit too small. The middle-sized companies are a little bit too big. Um, and then they hand wave and try to explain why the world doesn't match their perfect model. What we see here in looking at web traffic is an almost perfect power law distribution. Right? In fact, this looks exactly like what portfolio theory suggests it should. Um, we can see on the x-axis here we have the, the logged value of the market share. Um, we can see the logged value of the rank. So here's 10, here's 100, um, here's 1,000. And we can see an almost perfect straight line in this data. Right, a classic hallmark of a power law distribution. All right, so one of the other things that we know about stock markets is that stock markets stay really only about as constant. They're pretty consistent over time as to how concentrated they are. The amount of money in the very biggest stocks, right, GE, Exxon, Microsoft, is pretty consistent over any 10-year period. Um, so is it really true that concentration online is so similar levels of stability? Um, so we can, we can look at a number of different metrics of concentration. Here I've chosen uh, the Gini coefficient. And what we, what we find seems very much to match what we're used to in stock markets, um, that there's not a big variation over this three-year period on any single day from this level of concentration. In fact, um, to some extent, the level of concentration, there's some evidence that it seems to be mean reverting, that if it gets too concentrated or too unconcentrated, uh, it goes back to its previous norm. So the other thing we know about stock markets right, is that the top ranked stock does not change on a very often. Right? It's, very, it's a very big day when GE passes Microsoft or Exxon. Right? Um, so do we see the same kind of behavior in web traffic? And as it turns out, we actually do. So on the y-axis here, we can look at the, at the portion of days where the site at rank X changes. And the y, on the x-axis, we have rank. So what we can see here is that the, in the very top part of the, this traffic, where the, the, the Googles, the Yahoos, 
they're only changing places between 10 and 20% of the time. Right? Um, but once you get below about rank 10, the, the amount of volatility increases enormously. Um, the difference between rank 10, which changes only about 10% of the time, and rank 20, right, is rank 20 is changing, the, this, the, the, the site at rank 20 is changing about 80% of the time. Right? So um, where you are in the system makes an enormous amount of difference. And you find this not just over the entire web, but with news and media sites as well. CNN um, and Yahoo very rarely change places. Um, but if you're, ranked, uh, if you're ranked way down in the rankings, say rank 100, um, we can be almost certain that, that this, the site that's at rank 100 today is not going to be the site at rank 100 tomorrow. But here is where things, I think, get really interesting um, and where I think um, the really bad news for uh, contemporary newspaper organizations, for example, starts. So what we really want to know, what we're looking at here, is what happens. All right, so you start out the day at rank uh, 50. What's going to happen tomorrow? How much is your traffic going to go up or down proportionally? And so what we can see here, uh, when we look at the, on the y-axis, we can see these changes, um, uh, the, the changes day to day. And on the x-axis, we can see the rank, uh, again, on a log scale. What we can see is that if you are a very if you are very high up in the rankings, if you're ranked three or four or five, you're not changing very much proportionally on a day-to-day -day basis. Your, your, your market share is quite stable. And in fact, this middle line here is actually the measured median change. It's almost exactly zero for almost every rank. Right? Um, and these, these, uh, these dotted lines are actually the, uh, the inner 68% of the data. Right, so essentially, the uh, one standard deviation um, in, uh, in, in either direction. Right? And what we see is that the, uh, that the level of variance increases enormously as you go down the ranking. Right? On a day-to-day -day basis, um, if you're at rank 50 or, or rank 150, you can expect a big change in your market share on a daily basis. Um, whereas if you are number one or two or three, you're going to expect to be quite stable over time. But here's where things get even more interesting. Okay. Um, what if we don't care which side is number one, or number two, or number three, or, or rank 100? What if we think about this as a big game of musical chairs? Right? And we will only want to know what the, what the amount of traffic that the top side gets, or the, rank, or the side at rank 100 gets. Whereas before, from the perspective of an, in, of an individual site, the further down you are in the rankings, the more volatile you are. But if we only look at the sites that, if we look what happens to, say, the site at rank 100, um, the value is much more stable. So essentially what this is showing us is that the system is stable, even as the, even as, um, the sites in it are constantly churning. Right? And that, in fact, the system is more and more stable the further down you go. Uh, and that's one of, the, one of the paradoxical findings of looking at this data. And in fact, again, this mirrors what we see in actual equities markets. We see the same thing not just over the entire internet, but we see this um, just within news and media sites as well. Right? Um, uh, the, top, the 100th ranked site um, uh, uh, for news and media um, is going to be pretty constant. 
So I want to very briefly um, suggest that, um, so where are these, uh, to talk a little bit about where these findings actually come from. And I want to suggest that what really what's going on, well, we can, we can test, actually, whether this is just a size effect. Is it just the case that different size sites are behaving differently? Right. So if I'm correct, if the claims I'm making are accurate, then all of this system-level behavior should just be a function of these individual sites' growth rates. And the system shouldn't have any memory. It shouldn't, uh, a site that um, happens to get lucky and jumps and gets bigger should behave as a bigger site. It shouldn't know that it's a smaller site and drop back down the next day or the next month. Um, um, so, uh, so in this case, right, um, my collaborator and I uh, decided that we were going to test this. Right? We're going to use uh, bootstrap style methodology, place 300 sites at the average value for each rank, right? take the average value of whatever chair they're sitting in. Um, sample from the nearly three years of data in our sample. And every day, we know that the top-ranked site goes up by a certain amount or goes down by a, a certain amount. Essentially, we're shuffling all of these days randomly and trying to see what the overall pattern looks like. Um, so this is, the real, uh, this is the real data that we see. Um, from uh, this, and this is from the uh, news and media, uh, this is from the news and media category. Um, one of the things that's, uh, that we can see here um, over this three-year period um, is that there's a big gap between uh, the site that's ranked uh, number, uh, number, number four and the site that's ranked number five. Um, and this gap reemerges um, in almost all the simulations that we do. Right? Um, so the simulations, in many ways, are capturing the bandwidth uh, they're capturing the average distance between ranks pretty well. And they're quite stable over time. Oftentimes, these simulations don't work. Uh, if you run them long enough, they eventually break. Um, but they're quite stable, and they work even over a period of a year or years. Um, and just, uh, just to conclude, um, what we find with, this, with these kinds of simulations is that, again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out what are the odds that Google is going to be um, uh, you know, the number one site a year from now. What are the odds that a site that's at rank 50 will jump into the top 10? Well, this simulated data tells us um, that, in fact, um, if you are very much at the top, uh, if you start out with, uh, if you're a news and media site and you start out uh, at the very top of the rankings, your odds of staying at the top of the rankings over the course of a year um, is about 60%. Right? If you start at rank 5, at about 40% you're going to stay at rank 5. Right? You can go a little bit up, you can go a little bit down. But if you start out down here, you can end up almost anywhere in the system. Right? And you find the same f patterns over for, for, uh, for, the si for uh, traffic as a whole. Right? Um, there's a big gap, as we saw in the data, between the 10th ranked site and the 12th ranked site. Right? If you start out uh, in rank 10, it's very hard to go up, very hard to go down. Right? Um, but if you start out down below, you can end up pretty much anywhere. And in general, when we look at what actually happens over time, look at the variation that sites, uh, sites show over a year, we find that the model actually does a really good job up here, particularly in the top 50 sites, of getting, of explaining the, the dynamics. Um, uh, and the most, uh, the most recent models that we've done of this suggest that about 75% of the movement that we actually see is within two standard devi deviations of what uh, of our center line, right? um, which is um, 
for this kind of work is actually um, very, was very surprising uh, and is actually very encouraging. So what does all this mean? Um, there's some technical findings here, right? Um, so the system level behavior can be explained, most of it, though certainly not all, but most of it can be explained just as a function of these stochastic daily growth rates. The random up and downness uh, that you have, how much you wiggle on a daily basis depending on how big you are. Um, and we see again this paradox, right, where you have a lot of uh, her sites, particularly small sites, vary a lot, where the, but the structure itself is highly stable. Um, and partly what we're trying to do here is we're trying to build a model for, for future research. Uh, um, we want to know, for example, um, exactly what all of this means, right? Uh, so do the fact that you get more of your traffic from search engines make you more unstable? The early indications are, in fact, yes. Um, but I want to conclude, actually, by returning to uh, what I promised you at the beginning, by talking a little bit about what this means for media. I would conclude with two things. First of all, if the audience distribution is stable, again, what we have here is a big game of musical chairs. And you have outlets fighting for different chairs. And how much audience you get online depends on which chair you're sitting in. So, whether, uh, so there's, a very fine dist there's a very small difference in most cases between being the 10th ranked site and the 30th ranked site. Um, but in terms of staying in business, it's all the difference in the world. <laughs> Second, and even more discouraging, I would say, is that there is enormous uncertainty in site traffic for mid-tier and even smaller media institutions. Um, our models suggest that a typical newspaper ranked about 100 in the media, so something like the, New York, the Seattle Times, um, should expect its audience to change, online audience to change over the course of the year, somewhere between plus 50% and minus 60%. How do you build a news organization to account for that level of volatility? All right, how do you build an organization, a news organization, that account for a 50% increase in traffic right, or losing half your traffic? Um, that, I think, is a very hard problem. Um, and until we understand the dynamics of web traffic, it's one, I think, that's going to be very difficult to solve. So thank you. Terrific. Thank you. Um, wow, we've had three terrific talks, um, each focusing on a different aspect of the ways that the internet in particular and digital media more broadly are changing our political and discursive landscape. I'd like to open it up now to questions. Um, because we're videotaping today's event, um, I, I'll be repeating your questions. So if, if you hear an odd echo, that's, that's, that's intentional. Um, so, so please jump in with any questions that, that come up, and I'll, I'll try to send them your way. Laura? May I just repeat that for the cameras, <laughs> if I can? Uh, I'll try. So, so I think the question is, uh, Matthew, have, have, have you and your colleagues looked at 
um, the different types of site um, as you've thought about what it means to be large or small? Um, uh, uh, we've certainly thought about it, and we've done, I think, some preliminary research on this. And the answer is exactly what you would expect, that if you are more of a portal site, more uh, than that you, that you show a greater stability. Um, um, but interestingly enough, um, you find the same kinds of patterns even um, in areas where you wouldn't necessarily expect, and even when you don't see the same kind of portal effects happening. Um, so some blogs, for example, link a lot to other blogs, um, and some blogs don't. And you don't see the blogs that are linking more being more stable, even though uh, what really seems to be determined their stability is really their size. Um, yeah, so, so, so there's certainly some indications of this, um, but, um, and, um, but the preliminary data, at least, uh, suggests that, um, that, that size really is the, is the most important determinant of this. In terms of raw hits, yeah. So the question is, have you looked at size in terms of the number of pages on a site and the amount of content in those pages? Um, not yet, okay. um, but it, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Go for it. I believe most of your again, most of your measurements were basically hit count. They were. Uh, the, the measurements were market share, which was determined by the portion of daily, uh, by daily visits. And a visit is defined as a, uh, as a click or series of clicks with no more than, 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 uh, than 30 minutes between. But yes, that's exactly right. I'm wondering, have you attempted to see whether um, uh, hover time, time on the site, Um, we certainly have plans to do that, but we haven't done that yet. Um, there, there, there has been some other. Oh, is that almost spilled <laughs> Daniel's water? Um, uh, but there's been there, there have been some. Uh, there, there's there has been some other work that's looked to some extent at this question, um, and I, th I think they've they've certainly found that um, sites that are stickier, which is how uh, uh, how much time people spend, and if you visit once, are you more likely to come back, do tend to have greater stability. Great, thanks. Great. Don't be shy, Mike. So you say you're looking at market share. Do you have any insight into um, just uh, raw numbers in terms of how many, how, how kind of overall traffic is growing over that time? Because it's a much, potentially less bleak picture if traffic is growing as a whole rather than a zero-sum game. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and we hope to replicate this analysis with um, just raw hit data, raw visit data, if we can get it. Um, um, this, uh, over this period that we're looking at, uh, we do see a rise in the number, in the amount of traffic. Um, but that's on the order of 20, 30% over this period. Um, so not insignificant. Um, so a substantial rise. Um, yeah. Okay. Phil. I, I actually have a question for both of you. And that is, has to do with your comparisons. So it's an interesting, <laughs> it, it's a, a totally logical metaphor to start with the stock markets but why not compare to print media? Would the distribution actually be that different from the top two or three national newspapers, important regional ones, and then all the, the lots of the little ones? And the same kind of comparison question for Daniel. Is it, it's interesting that you would expect to find discourse on the 
the contemporary political websites, um, maybe the discourse is on the newspaper websites or the local media websites in some other place uh, other than the political party website. Um, well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll start first. Um, the answer is, the question is, if the question is, is the distribution different, I think the answer is yes. Um, so if you look at the top 10 news outlets, so that's uh, Yahoo News, CNN, uh, you know, down to the New York Times, um, they overall get 30% of the total audience measured again by visits. Um, if you look at the top 10 print newspapers, um, at the moment, they get about 21%. Um, so an almost a 50% increase for the market share of the top 10. At the same time, um, if you look at the, uh, if you look um, um, at the, uh, at where most of the eyeballs are in terms of newspaper, most of them are not on the New York Times or USA Today. Most of them are mid-size metro dailies. Mm -hmm. um, but that's uh, but that's not what we that's not what you see online. Um, you really see much more traffic to really small news sites. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean I think you're. As I understand your question, I, th I think you're right. I think if if my interest was political communication, it might not make the most sense just to focus on a political campaign. Um, that said, one of the the things that I find really interesting about political campaigns is that your data follows you everywhere you go. So, I mean, one of the, you know, and you've written about this and, and other folks have written about this, but a, a trend in, in thinking about political effects research has been to start building new theoretical models that account for the fact that people can pick and choose among a whole bunch of websites. Uh, Matt's work says that that doesn't really happen as, as much as you would expect. Um, and I would throw another wrinkle into that and, and say that you are being selected for the type of political communication that you receive to an unprecedented degree mm -hmm. on the basis of your prior interests and, and the data that they have about you. Uh, and that follows you everywhere you go, right? So that follows what ads you see when you're on the New York Times website, and it follows what ads you see when you know, you're shopping for a car, et cetera. And it happens in a political realm so that you get those ads and, and they come at you depending on all these sorts of things. So um, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's to look for a site of deliberation, you know, it could be somewhere else. Um, you know, and, and on a political campaign, you would get a community of supporters who police their boundary as supporters. Mm -hmm. um, and just to touch on real quick, I, I liked um, the question earlier about whether it's transactional for campaigns. And I, that's really the nutshell here, uh, because it's transactional from the end of the campaign, but social from the end of the citizen. And they are able to leverage that. And that's very much of a web 2.0 phenomenon. Um, and I think that that's sort of what's interesting about political campaigning now. Roland? No, I was, I, uh, your comment that uh, the Seattle Times, for example, uh, goes from plus 50 to minus 60 in the course of a year. I, I know that we have a lot of churn in newspapers. Yeah. But uh, that seemed like a huge amount. For a newspaper like the Times, not the PI, the yeah, Times, yeah. <coughs> that's as well respected. I think I'm right about that. Yeah. I'm not a Seattle yeah. resident, yeah. <laughs> but as well respected as the Times is, and as dependable as the Times is, mm -hmm. and as uh, investigatory as the Times is. That's the number of 
people who buy That's the market share. That's the online market share as, uh, as the, that, our that our model predicts. And that's how much the market share should vary if our model is right. Uh, now, our model, I mean, is a few months old, and it's certainly far from perfect. But that's, but, but that's the, um, but yeah, that's the general, um, that's the general ballpark. That's not the print. No, that's not the print market that's share. That's the online. Yes, yes, and in my, and, and in many ways, of course, you know, law, you know, if to to some extent, we've, you know, this is a reverse of what you've typically seen. Um, it, you know, oftentimes it was the smallest newspapers that had the most stable circulation base. Um, depending on the characteristics of the particular locality, um, and this is really, um, and that's this is really quite a very different phenomenon. I mean, and the and, and if you look at what's actually happening in terms of people's news consumption behavior, the the uh, of the people who've really shifted, the median shifter. Um, I'm not sure if that's a real word or real category, but I just invented it, so perhaps it is. Um, the median <laughs> shifter is going from reading a. Uh, a, a, a metro daily in a mid-sized market to reading uh, the New York Times or CNN.com or Yahoo News online. And that's, really, that's, that's really the kinds of, of behavioral shifts that are driving the aggregate patterns. I'd like to take advantage of my position as moderator to pose a question for the three. It seems that each of you actually has um, a centralization story that stands to some degree against the dispersion stories that we were told in the late 1990s in particular. Um, but each of you has a story built around different premises, sort of different forces for centralizing stuff. So Dan has a story that's very much like selling of the president. Uh, you have an active campaign organization. Um, you know, Phil, you have, a, you have a sort of distribution of infrastructure story. Um, and, and Matt, you have a story that I'm not sure I understand the causal forces in, though I see the patterns. And so I, I was hoping that each of you might, might say a little bit about whether, in fact, your story is a centralization story, and if so, um, qui bono and why? Um, sort of who's, who, who benefits from the f patterns of centralization that you're seeing? So, so in Phil's case, are you seeing a pattern of centralization where the United States stands in for sort of the leading news producer and everyone turns toward them while all of the other countries live in a kind of disturbingly info-neglected, ne info info-negative flux? <laughs> Can I answer second so that I can fit it with a graphic? <laughs> okay. Sure, go for it. Can, let's start with Dan then. Sure. But yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, I, I hint at this, at this earlier. It's, I think it's a, a centralization story, but an interested form of, of uh, what uh, Alan Lewis called distributed centralization. So what's interesting about this phenomenon is the way that um, media tools and interfaces are used uh, to connect citizens to political organizations in very new ways uh, that, I, that I see it. Um, outside of formal campaign structures, outside of your old ward boss who is giving you your marching orders of how to turn out the, the precinct on election day, outside of showing up at, say, your volunteer office and getting your marching orders, this is very much uh, sort of it's centralization, but through a system that enables you to really personalize your engagement and your involvement. Do it on your own time, volunteer on your own time. But all the while, you're a part of a system that channels through its affordances exactly what you do in some very defined ways. And that's what I think is really interesting about it. Um, so it's funny because, you know, uh, the, the rhetoric around the Obama campaign was very much of one that was sort of this vast grassroots movement, but I can think of no more campaign that had more centralized structures. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing, too, and, and part of this story is that 
thinking spatially, Chicago, that office, becomes the central site for data monitoring and analytics. Mm -hmm. um, so it really is sort of this, this, you know, these vast tentacles that people are connected to, but then sort of all this data processing that gets centralized at a point. That's, that also, I think, is really interesting. Thanks. So this is a graphic I didn't get to, but the centralization question cool. is an excellent one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, a colleague and I yeah. made a list of uh, the five government offices, five significant government offices for all the 75 countries with significant Muslim populations in our study. Revenue, justice, foreign affairs, the office of the executive, president or prime minister, and uh, something kind of internal, internal affairs or um, uh, national security. So five government offices, five libraries, usually two public libraries, two um, university libraries, and then the national library, which is the thing that collects tax records, um, and then all the political parties for each of my 75 countries. And I was interested in knowing where their political information infrastructure physically resided. And um, the colleague handled the technical aspects that allow me to demonstrate by mapping how many of these servers lie actually in Europe and Texas. Texas has a concentration of um, server facilities for Muslim governments, political parties, and libraries. So an important, the, the centralization story that I think I could contribute to would be to say that the political information infrastructure for many of these countries is not in these countries. Huh. It's in wow. Europe and the United States. Wow. Yeah, Matt. Um, I, I think that's actually fascinating. Um, yeah. But I'm going to respond to Daniel's point. I think that um, I, I actually have a very similar take. And I would, I would go so far as to say that the Obama campaign was both the most and the least centralized, depending on which metric you prefer, of a, a presidential campaign in history. Um, and that if you're, terms of, uh, if you're trying to figure out where, if, you know, where power has actually shifted, um, I think that the probably the single biggest shift has been away from local elites, state level elites, local social networks, which used to define an awful lot of political participation. It used to be that you participated in politics if your friends asked you. Now the typical pattern is that you participate in politics because you like this Obama guy or you like this Dean guy, mm -hmm. uh, and you go to their website and you turn, you put in your email address and your zip code, and the Dean campaign or the Obama campaign hooks you into a local social network. Um, so in many ways, that is, yes, more bottom-up. It is less exclusionary. You don't have to know the right f people to participate um, or to be asked to participate. Um, but it also provides for much more surveillance, at least top-down, um, than has ever been possible in a presidential-level campaign or any sort of uh, national-level political organizing. Uh, and I think that we're still <laughs> trying to grapple with some of the consequences of that. Yeah, and I mean, just to add, sorry, one, one real quick point is that, you know, there's the, these systems, too, of surveillance are virtually unregulated for political campaigns. Mm. And, I mean, you can't find out what, what campaign databases exist about you. you. You wouldn't even have a clear path of where to look. And there's no regulatory body that enforces that for campaigns. So I mean, that's another aspect of this, of the surveillance side. I, I, would, I would add one more, one more anecdote um, to that, because I, I just can't resist. I'm sorry. Um, and I think that um, one of the most remarkable things about the Obama campaign is that ma he made such an open system work. 
but it wasn't perfect. So take, for example, what happened after the, after the election, after Obama won. There was a period of a couple weeks where the campaign went dark. Um, and there are dangers to open systems. And what happened in Obama's case is you had a series of emails by people who were essentially con artists. The, the campaign itself had said, um, well, OK, um, you know, wait for us about what comes next. And these con artists stepped into the gap and say, hey, we're what comes next. We're the official new <laughs> Obama campaign organization in Arizona or in Colorado um, or in your metro area. Um, and this became a massive problem for the campaign organization, for, for OFA, uh, for that succeeded the campaign, uh, as they tried to deal with these groups that essentially had lots of time to build up a base of grassroots support. Um, and it's still not entirely clear how that's going to play out. Terrific. Thanks. I want to uh, open up for just a couple more questions. Yeah? yeah. One of the uh, speakers um, showed a, a, a data flow diagram. I think it would be Phil. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that was mine. The blue state? Oh, sorry, my bad. You mean just the connections that, connections. yeah. Right, in Nevada, yeah. Very low. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't have the internal campaign metrics. Uh, I have it having uh, an anecdotal sense of having made a lot of phone calls. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so the, a lot of these lists, there's a backstory here about where all this data comes from and where these lists come from. And the Democratic Party more generally has been behind the Republican Party on having a really up-to-date list uh, of national voters. Um, the Republicans have historically been much better about sort of knowing who their voters were and how to get them to the polls than the Democrats were. Uh, so, for example, calling Nevada, I mean, you would get, I would say, maybe get to talk to somebody live about one every 10 phone calls you made, if that. Uh, and my guess is that that's probably replicated on a grand scale. Um, and I know that also from having been on the ground in Nevada, Knowing just, again, an anecdotal sense is that going door to door, their lists were not, I mean, I would say maybe 60 to 70% accurate. So a little bit better on terms of who lives where. Um, but I couldn't be sure that all the lists were the same. And that was the other thing is that I, I didn't have a sense of. Can yeah? Mm -hmm. Would you say you're getting a hit rate of 10% when you went door to door? Were you getting a hit rate of 10%, just repeating for the camera? Um, oh, that's a good question. A little bit higher, maybe door to door, I would say. I mean, I would say maybe around 30%. I think the campaign knows that the door to door is still the preferable method. And, and what's interesting about this is that you could have, uh, about their systems, you could have thousands of volunteers making these phone calls. And these phone calls, everything, the results of those canvas would be available again to those field organizers. So, it's a lot easier to make those phone calls. And then you can only deploy volunteers on the ground when you need them to go there. So that data would probably have already also been cleaned because 10 or 15 people might have called through that list already. Thanks, Sita. And then, yeah. I have a brief question for Dan. Um, just in terms of the data that
cherries have been in um, advertising, whatever ad targeted ad advertising they are able to put together. Just how It's a, it's a great question. I mean, and, and I think in terms of talking to campaign consultants, um, would say that the techniques are effective, but you know, broadcast and, 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 and cable television are still where the action is at in terms of advertising to campaigns. And there's a number of reasons for that. But um, I, I mean, I've, again, and, and most of this is coming from, I don't have the numbers here from talking to consultants. Um, they argue, so there's a couple pieces here. So the psychological component of sort of where you put buttons and what those buttons say and the like have proven enormously effective for campaigns. There was just a talk about it last week among an analytics uh, guy who's working on Obama's campaign about increasing sort of their action rates 30, 40% at times just based on simple design decisions and where they place things on the page. Um, Beyond that, uh, so you know the behavioral marketing, uh, the the best story I've heard about that actually comes out of the no on Prop Eight, um, the yes, sorry the yes on Prop Eight side here in California, um, was enormously effective at raising money through these techniques, through these online advertising techniques, uh, from what I heard. Again, I don't necessarily know the the numbers behind it, and I haven't been able to figure out sort of what those models look like. I would love to see it, Phil, but. Um, can I try and answer too? Yeah. And I think it's uh, it can be good to distinguish between candidate campaigns and legislative campaigns. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's tough to f point to a candidate and say that this person won because of the internet, but there are there have been many leg campaigns for getting certain kinds of legislation or putting spin on mm -hmm. riders on things through houses of Congress that have that where victory is almost certain because the internet has allowed a lobby group to activate a public that didn't exist prior. And I, the, the book, uh, my first book uh, covers a bit the chlorine lobby and how the chlorine <laughs> lobby is able to activate America's chlorine lovers. And these are people who use chlorine <laughs> in their pool um, because of credit card data that they've used to purchase, figure out who's buying chlorine for their pools and for other things. And, and so this kind of direct targeting creates an issue public around chlorine that is not part of what we get in our news but successfully managed to prevent, um, I can't remember what the legislative outcome was that they wanted, but they wanted to prevent um, some subsidies from disappearing. And so the, the America's chlorine lovers still have cheap chlorine for their pool. Great. I wanted, I, wanted, um, I know we're gonna have time to talk a lot later in the, uh, in, the, in the reception that we're about to have. Matt, did you wanna follow up on that? I wanted to open yeah, up the one uh, In more terms question. of how effective this targeting is, I mean, Howard Dean, uh, in being Howard Dean, uh, told the National Press Club um, that, um, that uh, and all of these assembled reporters, and the reporters gasped. I'd never heard a room full of reporters <laughs> gasp before. I didn't know it was possible. Um, but he told them that, we, yeah, we, we can do exactly the same thing that they do, they being the Republicans. We, we buy the credit card information, and we can tell with 85% uh, probability who you're going to vote for without even checking with the Secretary of State's office to see whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Um, I think that in the best states, that's, that's, probably, that's probably accurate, um, perhaps even an understatement in terms of how accurate this targeting is. And I think we'll give the honor of the last question to Ethan. Um, but go for it. And then we'll open up, we'll have a reception, we'll have lots of chance to talk again to folks who are here. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Phil, I, I was really interested in the kind of tension that you put up between the physical infrastructure 
of of the internet and then the, the national uses these you know physically much smaller places. But I was wondering about the actual utility in the developing world of the internet versus cell phones. Mm -hmm. The physical infrastructure is mm -hmm. so different, mm -hmm. uh, where the cost is so much lower, it's so much more common and accessible. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if you're looking into that as well as a point of comparison. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think, um, I think the digital divide will be closed by mobile phones that improve their computing power more than laptops that make, allow people to do mo um, calls. And this, the maps of traffic actually include uh, bits from the digital switches for mobile phone infrastructure. So, um, and the other part of, the other reason the glow is so great between North America and um, Europe has to do with the financial information, um, battling back and forth, which exchange information, which just doesn't happen as much north-south. So absolutely, mobile phones are, are a key part of the information infrastructure. Yeah. Great. And with that and the globe circling uh, digitally in front of us, let's break and head for reception and thank our guests. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.